Good morning. <clears throat> Welcome home, family. We're so glad everyone's here to worship with us this morning. <clears throat> in, February, in February, we started a trek through the Gospel of John. And so now we find ourselves in November, and we are approaching the, well, we're in the final two chapters of this Gospel. And so we've traced out through uh, Jesus' life through the gospel, and we've seen uh, his teaching, we've seen his life and his ministry, and we, last week, last two weeks, we have talked about how he went to the cross for us, and today we're going to see how he rose from the grave for us, and how that changes everything. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, praise be to your name. For you are good, you are mighty, you are perfect. You are a loving Father. We thank you that you have given us your word. That the Holy Scriptures exist so that we can open it and know you. Know your nature, know your heart, know your will, and know what you have done to save us. So this morning as we approach John chapter 20, I pray that we can approach it with new eyes and new hearts open to seeing how you work in the story that changes everything for us. Lord, we love you and we seek you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. They thought it was the end. Pilate and the Roman soldiers thought it was the end. The sentence had been carried out. There were no more crowds chanting chanting, crucify him. The drama with the ruling uh, council could be now forgotten. The nails had held him on the cross until he had died. The spear was thrust home and he was dead. They thought it was the end. They thought it was the end. The ruling council, the religious leaders, they thought they had won. That rebel Jesus had been put down. He would no longer be uh, uh, ruling, uh, uh, stirring up trouble for them or casting the um, division among their people. He would no longer be gathering crowds or performing those miraculous signs. He would no longer be calling them whitewashed tomb or implying that they didn't understand their scriptures. They thought his blasphemous claims were done. His followers were scattered. And now he could be forgotten. They thought it was the end. His disciples were scared, confused, bewildered. The one they had placed their hope in, the Messiah, the one who was supposed to establish his kingdom, now hung upon a cross and had been buried in a tomb. And they could not put the pieces together. They had all ran away. And the ones that did kind of follow, they followed at a distance. And even Peter, their leader, denied knowing Jesus. They thought it was the end. But it wasn't the end. What they saw to be the end was really just the beginning of the middle turning point of all of history from which the end would flow. What they thought was the end was actually the second part of how Jesus saves us. For when we think about the cross, we cannot just think about the cross and the crucifixion by itself, but we must understand the resurrection, that he comes back, and we also must understand the ascension, that he goes to sit in heaven with Lord God our Father. 
And when you think about these things, you understand that this crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension is how Jesus saves us. Our whole faith is based on this movement. And so we can look at Jesus in the tomb and we know that that's not the end for we know the rest of the story. And we see the beginning of the second part of the story in John chapter 20, sorry, in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open with us to John chapter 20 and we'll read the first 18 verses. <clears throat> this is what it said. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and they saw, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to him, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have laid him, and how will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my brothers and say to, uh, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. This is an account of Jesus rising from the grave and how Mary discovers this and tells the disciples. And we see a truth in this account, and that's this. The resurrection radically reorders reality. That is what we see here, is that the resurrection happened, and because it happened, everything was changed. Reality itself was reordered. I said it's radically reordered because when we look at this word radical, it has a number of different meanings, but the most common one is revolutionary. And when you think of a revolutionary change, it's extreme change that uh, changes the existing system in an extreme way or flips it upside down. And that's what the resurrection did. It took the exi existing system of reality and flipped it on its head. It flipped it upside down. All that we knew was changed in an instant. The resurrection changed history itself. And it was the most radical event in all of history because reality was changed 
when Jesus rose from the grave. Death, the ultimate end, the end that waited all humans, was now conquered. Sin, the punishment that we inherited from Adam and Eve that has been hanging over our heads, it was now defeated. And now we have a hope that not is just for this life, but exists for all eternity. The resurrection radically reorders reality. Everything is changed. And this, let's look at the changes that happen when we look at this passage. The very first one is that the tomb's reality is reordered. This is like the baseline understanding of the resurrection, that the tomb changed. How did the tomb change? It went from full to empty. The very nature of the tomb changed. And this is the baseline, as I said, of the resurrection. It is saying that this happened. We're not making it up. We don't believe something happened to his body that, uh, that can be explained away, but that Jesus rose from the grave. And because of that, we believe that he's still alive even to this day, sitting on the right hand of his Father in heaven. That Jesus rose from the grave. And that is like the linchpin of our faith. Even Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15 says, if this didn't happen, if Jesus wasn't raised from the grave, we are the most to be pitied. For we are believing something false that has no power. We're following someone who was not who he claimed to be. But the tomb was empty. And that changes everything. And this is what we see in this account. That Mary, she went to the tomb, whether it was with other women, as the other gospel says, or by herself, we think it's probably with other women, because she even told the disciples when she found Peter and John, we don't know where they have laid his body. So she went to the tomb, and she sees it empty. And so she runs to tell the disciples, the very disciples race back to the tomb to see that it is in fact empty. And the very fact that it's empty changes their reality. So much so that our faith rests on this fact that the tomb was empty, that people who don't want to believe will uh, approach the resurrection and say, well, we have to either explain it away deal with it in some way to make sure people don't believe this really happened. And so people talk about how maybe the disciples came and they took the body. They stole the body of Jesus and he didn't really rise from the grave. When we look at the other Gospels, we see how improbable that is with a, with a unit of Roman soldiers guarding the grave and how they could probably overcome them or moving the huge stone that was blocking the grave. We see that that's not, that's not really probable of happening. Well, then they'll say, well, maybe Jesus wasn't really dead. And we see how improbable that is because I think Roman soldiers knew how to kill people. And they did. I mean, it's, it's historical fact that the Roman soldiers were experts in crucifixion. Just a few years before Jesus' time, there was a slave revolt, and they lined the roads with crucified slaves. They knew what dead was. It was dead. So he, Jesus truly had died. You can't explain away this empty tomb so easily. You have to come to grips with it. And if you believe the account of Mary, she sees two angels within the tomb, and these angels are showing that this is not, the, the cause of the empty tomb was not because of some grave robbers, but because God's power had invaded the earth and raised his son. 
And they, there, they were there to bear witness for that. And so this fundamental fact, the tomb was empty, changes everyone's reality who understands it and sees it. We can see how people are changed when they interact with it. We see John's reality change. John, the one who describes himself as he's writing this gospel, as the other disciple, the one whom, who Jesus loved. I think he thought pretty highly of himself, right? He's like, I'm the one that Jesus loved, right? That's besides the point. But he wrote this gospel and he gives an account of how his reality changed. He raced Peter to the tomb and he makes sure you know he beat Peter to that tomb. But for some reason, he just stoops and looks in and sees, yeah, it's empty. And Peter rushes in and sees that the linen cloths that were around Jesus are now uh, deflated. They don't contain a body anymore. And, G and then so Peter, um, John walks in there and verse 8 says he sees this and it says he saw and he believed. That John writing this point, pinpoints, this is the moment that he had faith. This was a moment when he started to get a little inkling, oh wait, Jesus truly is who he says he is. That he sees the empty tomb and he believed. He had that nugget of belief before that he, he thought this was the Messiah. He thought this was the one who was promised from the Old Testament and that the one who's going to restore the kingdom how it's supposed to be. But now he sees this empty tomb and after that defeat of the cross, as he would view it, he, he believes he believes that this is truly the God-man who came to save him. But I love how verse 9 tacks on this phrase that he saw and he believed. As it says in verse 9, just so I get it right, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. I love that because John recognizes that he believed in Jesus at this point, he believed that he was alive. He believed that something happened right here that changed his reality, but yet he did, could not explain it. He could not put all the puzzles pieces together. That looking back on it, when he writes this, he says, I did not understand that the scriptures had already testified that Jesus must rise from the grave. Looking back on it, he says, I can see that clearly. Maybe he was thinking of such passages like, um, <clears throat> Psalm 16.10 that talks about how the Lord won't let His Holy One experience corruption. Or maybe he was just looking at the whole storyline of Scripture and when, as, is, as he's an older man looking back and says it's very clear when you study Scripture that the Holy One of God, the Messiah, was to rise again. We don't know, but putting back at this point, when he's looking back, he says, I believed, but I didn't understand everything. And what tremendous hope that gives us. For I love theology, studying God. You might say I am, you know, a class nine nerd. And I, you know, I have I love diving into the depths. And I like having a big head about how much I know. I really do. Yeah, it's it's troubling sometimes. I love that, and it's worthwhile. And we need to study hard. But right here gives us hope because how much we study or how much we know, that's not what saves us. That's not what sanctifies us and brings us to where we're going to be. That we are saved because of what Christ has done. Now I'm always going to encourage everyone to pick up a book 
and know what they believe and why they believe it. But that is not where our hope is found. And I love this because even John can point back at this point in his life and say, I believed, but I didn't understand. I believed, but I'm still wrestling with how God is working these things in and how it ties in with Scripture. And how often in our lives are we in that exact same spot? Lord, I believe. I trust in you. But I have no clue how this ties in with what you revealed. I don't understand what you're working here. I don't understand why you're doing this to me right now. But I believe. And that's where our hope rests. Is that it's about what Christ has done. Not how much we know about what Christ has done. So John's reality was reordered because the resurrection radically reorders reality. But Mary's reality was reordered as well. We see her weeping. She's mourning. She's going to the tomb, mourning the loss of her teacher, her Lord, her friend. She thought he was dead. The stress of this weekend, you have to imagine, was on her as she watched who she thought was the Messiah, who she had hosted in her home, who, who she loved, die on the cross. She goes to his tomb and she finds it empty. And she panics. Jesus' body is gone. So she tells Simon, Simon Peter and John, where is his body? I cannot find it. And she goes back with them to the tomb because she's there when we pick back up and she's weeping at the tomb. And then she looks in. And she sees the angels. Right there, I just love this interaction because most time when you see angels appear in the scripture, what are people's reactions to them? They tremble. They're fearful. They go, get away from me. Mary sees them and is like, yeah, I see you, but I'm still looking for Jesus. Like she seems completely unfazed by the fact there's angels sitting in this tomb. Because she's caught up in her grief. This is the reality, the humanness of this. She's caught up in her grief, wondering where Christ is. Where is he? So she turns and she's about to leave this tomb and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. Whether this is Jesus, you know, you know kind of clouding her vision like he does in some other instances in the Gospels, or is Jesus caught up in grief and she expecting to find Jesus as a dead body so she doesn't recognize him standing alive in front of her? I don't know. But she doesn't recognize him. And he asks her the same question. Why are you weeping? And again, she explains it. I'm trying to find my Lord and I can't, if you've taken him, because she thinks he's a gardener, please tell me where he is and I'll take care of his body. And she was blinded by her grief until what? He says her name, Mary. And she immediately goes from weeping to rejoicing. She immediately goes from looking for Jesus to giving him a bear hug. Because I think that's what happens. Because what does he say? Don't cling to me. I have yet to ascend to my father. I mean, I think she goes from weeping to wrapping him up and saying, Jesus, I have found you. Her reality was reordered. And it happened when he said her name. And I love that. For Jesus said this was how it happens. Back in John 10, what did he say? Say, I 
am the good shepherd and my sheep recognize my voice. That when he calls his sheep by name, they respond. And here he is calling one of his sheep by her name and she responds. She sees him for who he is and she clings to him, rejoices with him. And that same powerful truth is true for each one of us. That if we believe in Jesus, if we know that he is our Lord, that if we believe that he is who he said he is, we know this reality that he has spoken our name and that rings throughout eternity and it moves in our hearts and it pulls us towards him and we are saved when we hear his voice. That if you are a believer at this point, it is because he spoke your name and you responded to it. He called you home. What a powerful thing that is and how it changes us. We see it change Mary. She goes from weeping to rejoicing, but furthermore, she goes from thinking there's no hope to becoming an evangelist as she runs back to disciples and she shares this truth with them. Our Lord is alive. He has risen and she tells him everything he told her. I love this because her reality was reordered and now she is an evangelist. And just a side note, I found it very interesting that Jesus chooses to use women as his first evangelists in this world. That he, He's speaking to this purposefully saying, I'm using every single person who calls upon my name and believes in me. Everyone is useful for spreading my Good news. And so he has Mary run and tell the disciples, and her whole reality is reward, just like ours is when we come to know who Christ is. But that's not all. All of the disciples, every believer's reality is reordered. As we see, when Jesus speaks to Mary in the message he gives to her to tell the disciples, we see how he changes their position. I love how he's, he tells her, when you look at his words, if we just repeat what those, uh, those verses said, he tells her, if I can find it real fast, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. I love this. When he tells Mary, go to my brothers. Right there, he's showing how he's reordering the position. They're now his brothers. Then he says, go to tell them that I'm going to ascend to my father and your father. A hundred and nine, eight times, okay, 108 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls God Father. The vast majority, about 70 sometimes, he calls God the Father. 20 sometimes, he calls God my Father. One time, he calls God your Father when talking about disciples. And it's right here. He's showing that him being alive, him being raised from the dead, changes their reality. That they have went from just being followers or believers, but now they're incorporated into his family. That they can now claim that the Almighty God is their Father. 
that they have a personal relationship with God through Jesus, that they are changed, their position has changed, that they have gone from sinners to saints, that they have gone to rebels to sons, they have gone from the fatherless, or more dramatically, the, uh, from having the devil be their father, to now being able to call upon the Almighty God, the fa- their Father in heaven. Their position had changed. They're brought into God's family. And that same is true for each and every one of us if we believe in Jesus. That our position is changed. For before Jesus, we all were going our own way. We're all trying to seek our own path for life. Before Jesus, we're trying to prove ourselves by our own merit. Before Jesus, we were dying in sin. And that's where we are destined to be. But yet Jesus comes and he saves us us. That if we believe in him, he takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and pulls us into the kingdom of light. He takes us out of sin and makes us, declares us, and then fundamentally changes us so that we're now saints. People who can follow him, who are going to live for him. He changes us. When we believe in Jesus, our position is reordered. Our reality is reordered, just like the disciples' reality was reward. Why? Because there's a fundamental, this baseline reality that changes when Jesus rises from the grave. And it's the fact that the power of death is overturned. Before Jesus rose from the grave, all humans faced the executioner's blade because we're all going to die. and We're all going to die apart from God. Death was the curse that happened from the garden that we had that awaiting for us. It's one thing that was assured. We can count on that. What's going to happen? We're going to die and we're going to be taxed. Death and taxes, right? That's the, the things we can count on happening. And right here, Jesus rising from the grave changes reality. Death is overturned. When Jesus rose from the grave, he vindicated himself. He showed that what he spoke before and who he was was true. He conquers sin. He conquers death. He conquers the devil. Everything is conquered. He proves that he is victorious once and for all. But also the resurrection promises us a future, a new life right here, right now, and an everlasting life in the world to come. Jesus rising from the grave is fundamentally different than any other other people he brought back from death. For we read accounts about how he spoke words and would heal from a distance and a little girl would wake up. How he called forth at Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And Lazarus came out of the tomb. He raised people from the dead. So what's different about this is because when he is raised from the dead, he is not going back to the grave. Everyone else that he rose from the dead went back to the grave. But Jesus did not. And I think that's the significance of John pointing out the linen cloth that would bound Jesus. So I mentioned twice in the Gospel of John, once with Lazarus and once with Jesus. And it's different in how they're mentioned. With Lazarus, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus kind of comes hopping out, covered in his linen cloths, tied and bound. And they have to go up there and unbound him from these cloths that tied him. 
And he would use those later. Probably not the same ones, but he would you need his linen cloths, the grave clothes, again. But when Jesus rises from the grave, raises from the grave, they go in there, and it seems to indicate from the scriptures that the wrappings around his body were just kind of deflated, and that the one around his head was kind of taken off and just rolled up and put to the side, almost as indicating I have no need for this anymore. And something fundamentally different happened here. That he just kind of evaporated through these grave clothes. Just kind of like how he'd walk into some locked rooms later in the Gospel of John. He is now in his glorified human form that defies our expectations and he will never see death again. And because of that, he's pointing to the fact that awaits all of us. All of us who believe will one, do, one day too be resurrected just like Jesus. In a glorified human form to live forever with Him and how the signals that the curse of death is now done. That we can now live a life right here that's filled with fullness and have everlasting life with our God knowing that we will not see corruption. Knowing that death will not have the final word. Knowing that sin is no longer defeating us, but now He has defeated sin. The reality of the world has been reordered. The resurrection radically, radically reorders reality. That is the truth of this account. And it gives us hope. A hope that is unique to the Christian faith. As a pastor, I have great, I, I'm invited in some on some of the most joyous occasions of people's lives performing weddings. And I'm also invited in some of the most hard times of people's lives performing funerals. And both of these opportunities we can, you can see as a chance to share the gospel and the good news because a wedding is an illustration given to us by God that explains the gospel. But at a funeral, you get to speak a hope when people are actually listening. Because in a funeral, people are looking for hope. They're looking for understanding, looking for some way to put, uh, grab onto our understanding of what is going on here. And a, in a, the gospel, this truth, gives us hope. For you can speak the truth that if this person knew Christ, if we know Christ, this right here is not the end. The mourning is real. We're mourning the loss of a loved one. But if we know Christ, and if they know Christ, this is not the final say that they will be with God right now and then in eternity we'll see them again and we can have hope in that. Hope is powerful. Hope keeps us going. Which is why I love how the New City Catechism's first question is, what is our only hope in life and death? That we're not our own, but belong to God. That's our hope. That because Jesus rose again, we have hope that transcends and conquers death. I go through the New City Catechism with my son Titus every night, and he has the first question memorized, so much so that we were watching Star Wars uh, Clone Wars uh, 
um, when he was probably like two years ago. And someone says something about hope. Someone said, hey, you're our only hope. And he runs to me and he hits me and goes, daddy, 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 that we're not our own, but belong to God. He had the answer memorized. What is our hope? That we're not our own, but belong to God. And how true that is, is a hope that we can cling to, is a hope we can trust, is a hope that that gives us buoyancy on bad days is our hope that we know is true even in our darkest days and is our hope that we rejoice in on our best days that we're not our own but we belong to God because Jesus rose from the grave we have that hope we have victory in Christ we have life in Christ and we know what awaits us all in Christ. So much so that in 1 Thessalonians, Paul could say this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That the resurrection is why we have hope. That death does not get the final word. But that we who believe in Christ will always be with the Lord. So be encouraged, my brothers and sisters. And rejoice that Jesus is risen. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this glorious truth. That Jesus rose from the grave, conquering sin and death so that we can have life in Him. So that we can know what awaits us. So that we too can be saved and brought into that new to follow the King of truth in a country that now maybe starts steering away from that tree in Christ and having that glorified reality waiting for us. Lord, we love you. We pray for everyone here, everyone who believes in this truth, that they can cling to this hope when all else doesn't make sense. They can know this to be true. And that I can give them hope for all of their days. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.